Uh, greetings, my name's Adam. Uh, welcome uh, to our time together today. Uh, we're opening up uh, the book of Revelation at the moment and this is talk number two in a seven-part series. Please have your Bibles open and if you have a sermon outline that will be handy as well. Uh, let me pray. Father God, we ask for your help that we would see the glory and wonder that is your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. I want to start by asking, who likes getting in trouble? Anyone? No? Oh, is it ever worth it? I don't know. Uh, I got in trouble last week. I, uh, it was classic. I had a day off. I did three loads of washing. I hung it out to dry. But, um, well, apparently normal people ha hang out the washing on the washing line outside. They don't drape sit around the dining room on doorknobs and chairs. So, a well, never mind about that, but yeah, I got in trouble. Uh, in our text today, the Apostle John gets in trouble. Uh, so much trouble, and we should be asking, what on earth for? Where is John? He's on the island of Patmos, verse 9. What and where is Patmos? Well, think Alcatraz, but this is off the coast of modern-day Turkey in the Aegean Sea. And again, we ask, well, what? What for? What is he in trouble for? Verse 9 tells us, I, John, is on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Can you see it there? Now, the first thing today as we come to this book, we meet a servant in prison because of, why? The word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And I wonder, have we heard those words before? Uh, do you remember them from last week in verse 2? Uh, John, who testifies to everything he saw, and what is it? What he saw is the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. Uh, this is what landed John in jail. What we open up here now in this book is what got John into trouble. So little wonder he speaks in verse 8 about being our brother in suffering and patient endurance. It begins, John, to the seven churches in the province of Asia, grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Uh, can you see the Trinity straight away? The one who is, was and is to come. Uh, verse 8 is very similar. And, and so here we meet the God of all history, the God of all time and even the God of beyond whatever the future involves. Uh, we've got the, the seven spirits. I wonder if you were curious about that. If I said, uh, you might say, Adam, I thought there was one Holy Spirit. What's that about? And then if I said, well, what if it was the sevenfold spirit? You might be happier. If you heard last week, uh, remember to look for the symbolism so if I said I've sailed the seven seas, you might hear it literalistically and say, oh, Adam, which seven? But that would be to misunderstand the point. That would be to miss the nuance of what's being said completely. It's not about seven seas. It's about the fact that I've sailed everything. I've done everything in terms of sailing. And so it means something quite different, actually. I've done it all. And so the number seven, and it'll come up a lot in the book of Revelation, it means uh, completeness, 
fullness, the essence of, it means perfection, all that it should be and can be. And here, that is a picture of the Holy Spirit. All that it is and can be, its fullness is there before the throne of God. And so this beginning is very Trinitarian because uh, we see, I think, God the Father is active and God the Holy Spirit is there before the throne and God the Son is there. And for the rest of chapter 1, where does the focus lie? Is it God the Father, God the Holy Spirit? No. The rest of the chapter focuses on God the Son, Jesus. So let's play a quick game of who am I and cast your eyes over to verses 12 onwards towards the end of the chapter for a moment. So picture this. My hair is white like wool, white as snow, verse 14. My eyes are like blazing fire. I wear a golden sash around my chest, verse 13, and a robe that reaches my feet, verse 13. Feet, well, they're like bronze glowing in a furnace. Can you imagine that? My voice, it's like the sound of rushing waters, verse 15. Ever tried to talk at a waterfall? You have to shout. Uh, loud, or it's loud like a trumpet, verse 10. Uh, now picture a sword coming out of the mouth, verse 16. It's double-edged, it's sharp. Face shining like the sun in all its brilliance. And he's got seven stars in his hands and he's walking among the seven lampstands, verse 13. I mean, imagine this as a Sunday school activity. Tinker says, kids, draw this. Oh man, it would be really something, wouldn't it? And if you don't know who this is, come with me to verse 18. Can you see verse 18? He speaks, he says, I am the living one. I was dead, there's a clue, and now look, I am alive forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death and Hades. And of course we know the answer is Jesus. Here is a picture of the risen, splendid, majestic, powerful King Jesus. Uh, this one like a son of man in all his radiant brilliance takes us back to those images from Daniel 7. Doesn't it? That vision that Daniel saw or the vision Ezekiel saw in, uh, towards the end of chapter 1. One like a son of man, brilliant, like the sun. Or then it takes me to the Gospels where Jesus takes P Peter and John and I think it's James up to a mountain and he, he turns this on and suddenly Jesus is bright and radiant and glowing, like hard to look at. And then God speaks and God says, this is my son, listen to him. And I think that's a moment where Jesus cranks this up. He turns it on and he gets his son of man on, if you like, or his God man on. And he's about to launch. And of course, here in this vision, John says, well, he fell over as if dead. And that's not the, a wrong response. It's perfectly understandable. But notice what the risen, transcendent, powerful King Jesus, what does he say? Verse 17. And what does he do? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me. And he said, do not be afraid. 
I wonder what you what are you afraid of at the moment? Maybe John, like so many Christians at the time, feared for their life. Clearly, John feared God more. That's why he's in jail. Who is Rome or Caesar compared to Jesus? What are you afraid of? Are you afraid of death? Are you afraid of not being good enough? You keep buying the devil's lie that it's a matter of works and not grace? That somehow you're not acceptable to God? That's why we need Jesus. That's why we have Jesus. You're afraid of sickness every time you get the test results. You wait and wait, waiting for the phone to ring. Does it fill you with dread? Or growing old? You fear for your children or your grandchildren and their future. Maybe your fear at the moment might be job security. Maybe maybe your fear is as simple as the fear of missing out at the moment. How does the knowledge that Jesus is alive, how does that touch your fears? Jesus is alive. Whatever our hardship, whatever our crisis, a crisis of sickness or loneliness, whatever it is, Jesus is alive. Does knowing that Jesus is alive, does it change your attitude to sin? Does it move you to greater think, greater acts of repentance? Because Jesus is alive. And because Jesus is alive, does that lift your head and move you to deep gratitude and great joy? Does it help you to keep things in perspective? Does knowing Jesus is alive, does that make you more prayerful? That knowing that he's here and present, it pushes you down onto your knees, so to speak, where you're more prayerful because you know he's alive. He's listening. Does knowing that Jesus is alive, does it move you to acts of love and service to his people? Does it produce in us a mutual submission and humility because he's the king and I am not? Does knowing Jesus is alive, does it abate your fears? And if it doesn't, then why doesn't it? Because when we're afraid and our fear drives our decisions, our thoughts, our actions and our tongues, we know that that's not good. That is never a good outcome. But the alternative is to be clinging to Jesus, isn't it? Or notice he clings to us. His hand is on John's shoulder. That he is risen, that he's got this. I mean, have you seen him here? Jesus is resurrected. He's awesome. He's king and powerful. But notice also that he is tender and compassionate and kind. And patient. I mean, it's little wonder John will go to 
He'll go to jail for him. He'll even die for, for Jesus. Little wonder. He'll do it for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus because he knows whose side he is on. Maybe he knows the words that Jesus, he remembers the words that Jesus promised in John 16, 33. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Okay, what else is Jesus like? Well, back in verse 5, we're told that Jesus is the faithful witness. Uh, Christians back in the day were under pressure from, uh, to worship the Roman emperor. So bearing witness to Christ could cost you your life. And the temptation to compromise was real. It was life and death. It means getting into trouble. But this Jesus is the one who is obedient to the Father. Even to death upon a cross, Philippians 2. He's the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood, verse 5. It's this Jesus, the one who began to launch in Mark chapter 9, remember, if I'm right, the one with all this power and authority. It is this same Jesus who died. I mean, he could have launched any time he liked. That's the implication. He could have said, I'll blow you lot, I'm done. Tired of it. See ya. But no, look at the cross and see there that God died. For you. Look what humanity did as they execute God on a cross. And see, verse 7, that one day the peoples of the world are going to see that and they're going to wake up to that truth. And you can be sure when they do that, the peoples of the world will mourn. Verse 7. Look what we did. Yet Jesus, in the face of great human evil, he is the faithful example. And the implication for us, we've got to be, we keep being faithful. Keep being faithful to the one who loves us and freed us from our sins by his blood. What else is Jesus like? Verse 5, he is the firstborn from among the dead. Our hope, of course, uh, is that Jesus died and rose again. That's verse 18 as well. Notice that he is alive, he is alive, he is alive. His death and resurrection then is the first of many who will follow. That as we follow Jesus in this life, we will follow him through death to the next. Our hope is that Jesus will come and take us to be with him for all eternity. Because verse 7, you can can be sure he is coming back again. He is the firstborn among the dead. What else is he like? Again, verse 5, Jesus is our confidence. See him rule over the kings of the earth. We're going to see that a lot in Revelation. And this is exactly what John's readers need to hear. If you think about what this meant to the original reader, they need to know that Jesus is the king over the rulers of the earth. Absolutely. He's the one 
who walks among the lampstands, which verse 20 tells us the lampstands are the churches, the seven churches. And remember that set number seven again, it means completeness and fullness. And so you can see uh, the church universal, I think. That's legitimate. Jesus walks among his churches as their king, as our king. And that he is present, he is near. And as we read this book, as it unfolds, we're going to see the church. The church will see what Jesus does with the kings and the kingdoms of the world. It's going to be hard to look at. You've already, already made that observation to me. It's part of his justice, bringing an end to sin, the world and the devil and evil. It's got to go. But see that Jesus is all about his kingdom. The kingdom, in verse 8, that you might have noticed, I skipped over so that I can come back here. But verse 6, see that he's making us to be a kingdom. There it is again. Here is the purpose of all this. That he's made, as part of that kingdom, he's made us to be priests. So get your robes on. Remember, priests... Stand between God and the people in the Old Testament. Aaron was the high priest, wasn't he? He mediated God's word. Uh, he mediated God to the people. And now in the New Covenant, God is making a kingdom of priests. That is also 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 5 and 9. And so our purpose is to stand between God and the world to bear witness to the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. There it is, and to be willing to get in trouble for that, I think. To show the world God. To show them the glory and wonder that is his son. To show them his love and forgiveness, his victory in our lives. To show it to the world, to bear witness to him in the world, to testify to Jesus in service to our God and Father. All to his glory and praise and power forever and ever. Amen. That's our purpose.